0: Welcome back and thanks for tuning in to Oil & Gas Onshore, where I am on a relentless pursuit to bring value, unity, and information to the energy industry one conversation at a time. So sit back, relax, and remember that even this very device you're listening on requires some form of hydrocarbon. This episode is brought to you by Technip FMC, a company who truly represents the future of energy. And for those who enjoy a nice cold beverage while watching the sunset or simply drinking coffee on the way to work, Technip FMC is giving away Yeti Tumblr to one lucky winner. All you have to do is click the link in the show notes and enter your information for a chance to win. Well, Welcome to this week's episode. I'm here with Jason Modulin, president of the Texas Alliance of Energy Producers. Jason, welcome to the show, my man. How are you doing today?
1: I'm good, Justin.
0: Thanks so much for having me on today. Yeah, you're most welcome. I don't know. It looks like the sun's shining there, but here in Houston, it's beautiful. Are you visiting from Austin today? Joining in from Austin?
1: Absolutely, yeah. I'm dialed in from Austin today. Okay, okay. How's everything up in Austin, world? It's good. It's hot like it is there, but we don't quite have the humidity that you've got. I'm sure.
0: Yeah, we're a little closer to Galveston, but Austin's awesome, man. I, you know, it's funny because if you think of like the capital of Texas, that's obviously where you know Austin's the capital of Texas, and you would think that going there, it, it always has had this like kind of unique sort of like, you know, keep Austin weird vibe, but you know, Austin is a place where there's a lot of things happening and especially how long have you lived there for?
1: My wife and I've been here about 17 years, but then going to school just North of Austin. So nearly 20 years and it's changed significantly over that time. Lots of growth, lots of new high-rises and buildings downtown. I mean, it's it's a completely different city from when we first got here. Do you like it more or less or
0: kind of indifferent (laughs) than what it used to be? Because there's been a lot of people that have moved to Austin that probably...
1: May surprise people, I guess, if you will. I like it less. If I can find a way to get somewhere else, but still do my job at the Texas Capitol and the Railroad Commission, uh, (laughs) I would find a way. But uh, that's kind of where it keeps me.
0: Well, you know, come one, come all. There's enough land for everybody here. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Well, uh, a big shout out to Chris Oshik for looping you into this. I originally had reached out to Chris and he got connected to me through a gentleman here in Houston. And I feel like someone with your role has probably had plenty of experience with public speaking, so this should be a piece of cake for you. But have you been on a podcast before?
1: I have done some podcasts before and then do kind of a regular radio program with some folks out of San Antonio. So uh, do quite a bit of online recording and okay. public speaking.
0: Well, I felt like I was with someone with a good amount of experience. And so now's an opportunity. Shameless plug. What's the radio thing? Sure. It's way?
1: it's called In the Oil Patch Radio Show with Kim Bilotto and David Blackman. Uh, you might know David from Forbes Magazine, a uh, really okay. great commenter out there. He's got Shale Magazine as well. And so uh, just great, timely information that they're putting Out and so I enjoy looping in with them about once a month, answering questions from folks calling in. It's a great little program. That's great. What we'll do is afterwards, I'll get the link and I'll put the link in the show notes. That way,
0: if anyone's interested to tune in, they can click the link and follow along. I I think that's great. I think the more content and the more we can communicate through these types of platforms is critical. And and we'll talk a little bit about the challenges and perhaps why later on. But again, I commend you for that. Spending time and doing that and educating folks, I think is extremely
1: important. So again. Thanks for what you're doing on that. I mean, so often we're speaking to ourselves, we're talking to petroleum engineers or we're talking to landmen, but that information is not getting out wider. And so you really have a platform to make sure that people that aren't necessarily in oil and gas are hearing this critical information. And then hopefully it's spreading.
0: Yeah. Hey, well, let's stay on this topic then. I mean, I've always preached that. And, it, and that's one thing that kind of drives me nuts oftentimes is we're so good at beating our own chest and telling everyone, and I'm speaking in generalities here, but we're so good at saying, Hey, we're the best. You need us. Screw everyone else. Everyone else doesn't know what they're talking about, but it's you know all within the circle of trust within our oil and gas community. But I just find that that's that's not conducive to like ultimately bringing people together to provide reliable, abundant energy and affordable energy to people, whether it's in the U.S. and everywhere else. But for instance, I went to, and I'm not going to name the summit because I I, I don't want to put anyone out there. But you know, it was a bunch of oil and gas folks, and it kind of reminded me of like a scene, and again, not quite as as dramatic, but of like Wolf of Wall Street, where the guy, you know, the gentleman who was speaking, and again. You know, I love him. does a great job. He's a voice of the industry, a little abrasive at times, but you know, he had everyone just, you could just the energy and cheering it. Yeah. Hoorah. And, you know, us, oh, I guess we need to spread the good word. And it's like, that makes sense, but you've already got these people's votes. So how do we, and I'm, and again, there's no one, there's no silver bullet. It's like, but how do we tell our story, share the message in a kind and empathetic way for those who disagree with a lot of the initiatives that we are putting forth to provide energy and produce energy is it's like, why don't we do something like that in California, downtown Los Angeles? Why don't we go somewhere where, you know, it's like, you know, when you're running the election and, and everyone goes and they kind of preach to the choir and it's like, well, it's just, for instance, like there's someone that comes into Houston and goes downtown and I'm not trying to be polarizing at all, but, you know, like Democrat that comes in and into Harris County. Naturally there's going to be a big showing stuff but if I was running whether it's you know red blue purple whatever I don't care but I would go to the opposite you know space and try and educate and be one with the community because that's how you're going to change the needle but a lot of times we go in with vinegar and we try and pour that on everybody instead of going in with honey I mean and attracting you know the bees and say hey let's work together so bringing it back to kind of full circle here is like what is with the, the Texas Alliance of Energy Producers and even yourself, why do you think we always do such a good job of preaching to the choir, but we have such a hard time of perhaps building trust amongst the community of those who don't particularly like oil and gas?
1: I think we've been able to rely on a on an older model where we just plugged jobs, we plugged taxes that were paid in to the state and the federal government, and we relied on that To really attract people to supporting oil and gas i think we took it for granted frankly that people would see what we see which is that over 80 percent of our energy needs are, are met with oil and gas and other types of fossil fuels that it's so critical to our modern life that it should just be taken, that we took it for granted. And and right now there's such an ignorance in understanding energy, where it comes from, how it's critical in our life. And and I don't mean to be negative when I say ignorance, but just a a lack of understanding. And there's clear rules for newer types of technology, solar or wind or batteries. But there's also kind of the key components that we need to power our economy. And we haven't quite bridged that gap. You were mentioning to folks that support lower emissions, support jobs, support doing it cleaner, and embracing innovation. And that's so much the key message that we have from folks there in Houston that you see all the time. That's what their companies live and breathe every day, is how can we do it with lower emissions? How can we be faster? How can we innovate quicker than our competitors, how to break that out from just internal dialogue and competition really so people can see it because you absolutely touched on some key points that the world needs energy. We're doubling our energy consumption over the next 30 years. Where is that going to come from? Even the rosiest scenarios for reducing our oil and gas consumption still has it half the daily demand that we have in the world. And where do you want to get that from? And just apples to apples, comparing the United States and other countries, we have lower emissions. We have labor standards here. We have other checks on whether it's investor security that you don't have in the rest of the world. And so, Wouldn't a prudent Republican, Democrat, whoever, we need to produce it here. We need to find solutions for producing energy here in the United States. And then from there, policy should flow from that, that we need pipelines, that we need permits, that we need certainty in our market. And I think that's something that everyone can get behind, that affordable, reliable, abundant energy, because it's so critical not just the pump and what's on your utility bill, but it's how your groceries get to market. It's how the plumber coming over to your house is going to be able to charge you a reasonable rate, not something higher. To me, in a fully
0: respectful way, it seems obvious, right? It's like for us in the, on the oil and gas side, like unless there's an economically viable and readily available alternative, why force something that eliminates... Something that's in extremely high demand, even though at a historical records, I mean, I think we'll surpass, you know, globally 102 million, you know, a day, probably within the next couple of years, if not sooner, especially if China opens up at like at a roaring pace, which it looks like even I think, and as of today, like Shanghai just opened up. And I think, you know, the jet fuel demand for China is already like going nuts. But it seems obvious. But why do you think, do you see it perhaps a function of like, we understand there's going to be massive trade-offs. There's going to be a bunch of people that are going to pay way more than what they can afford. Like, we're going to have to kind of go through hell to get to heaven. Is that kind of the mentality? Because surely, like, I'm just a dumb roughneck from Alberta. No, no, no. But it seems obvious to me.
1: I think that is what is being pitched currently out of Washington, D.C., is that, there is gonna be this valley that we're gonna have to go through, but on the other side, it's gonna be significantly rosier. And what we've seen just in the experience here in Texas is that we can add these types of solar and wind technology, but we need a backstop, and that backstop is natural gas. And it's the same across the United States, it's the same in Europe, is when you have interruptions in those types of technologies, which are not as reliable as turning a switch on, That you need a backstop. And unfortunately, we're also seeing the rest of the world in developing countries, in China, in India, in Africa, when we're denying them the ability to get natural gas, they're turning to coal. Instead of potentially lowering their emissions, they're turning to dirtier coal From China, rather than seeking a lower emitting option and potentially a more reliable option. That's the disconnect we have is that the United States is really only 11 to 15% of global emissions on any given basis. Mm. You take us down to zero, you haven't affected the global climate. We have the same issue is what are we really talking about here? Are we talking about just getting away from domestic oil and gas production just to get rid of an industry because we really haven't solved anything after that. We're going to be more dependent upon imports from around the world. And you haven't improved the environment. You haven't improved the job landscape in any way. So much of oil and gas here in Texas and in the United States is not centered just in Houston. We've got communities across Texas that rely on oil and gas, severance taxes, royalties, and those jobs to be fruitful. Disconnect and getting back to our communications conversation. Before, we used to be able to have op-eds in the paper, an open door to kind of mainstream media. That's changed. There's really not a desire to hear from oil and gas unless it's just we're getting away from oil and gas and moving to something else. It, It makes different outlets like yours like resources like social media, so much more important to say, if there's going to be a a bias against oil and gas producers, how do we get that message out? How does a layman that is trying to fuel up their truck and go to their job, but doesn't work in oil and gas, how do they understand these issues? Is it a company price gouging them at the pump? No, it's real supply constraint challenges that everyone is dealing with as are oil and gas producers. And there are solutions to building that affordable, abundant, reliable energy source that can be varied, doesn't have to be one particular source. But that's the solution for both that guy in his truck and our businesses that are trying to move to Texas, the manufacturers that have reshored back to Texas, and we want to keep them here. But when we're driving up energy prices right now, I mean, that's just an extreme risk. That we're seeing playing out in Europe where they're furloughing workers, where where they're laying people off. We don't want to replicate that. We should not want to replicate that.
0: No, I mean, we've essentially created a monster here. And and, and granted, I mean... I don't know if there was anyone who predicted demand to come back the way it was, but you know, during COVID, I read a lot of articles just historically of pandemics and demand destruction and then coming back with a vengeance. Like surely someone would have it made sense fundamentally on just a supply and demand basis and human behavior that, like, hey, if we, you know, when these things come back, we better have a supply, which kind of leads me, you know, kind of. Just thinking about it now, talking about you know, our inventory levels and, and even during the Trump administration, it would have made sense to me to like fill up the SPR like to the brim and like just be pumping oil away left, right and center into the Strategic Petroleum Reserves. But I, I don't think that necessarily happened. But regardless, it, it didn't happen.
1: Unfortunately, President Trump did propose that to Congress at the time. And Congress looked at it and said, why would we want to help the oil and gas industry right now? purchase wow. very cheap barrels. I think at the time it was about $20 a barrel, fill up the SPR and have it for rainy day. I mean, that's essentially what it is. The SPR was created in the 1970s because yep. if we get an oil price shock, we need to be able to power tanks and helicopters and jets if we get into a conflict.
0: So Chief Reserve, again, depending on how you define strategy and what it's used for, but fundamentally, isn't it used for exactly what you're talking about? It's not to try and drive prices down,
1: right? Yes, it is not to drive prices down. It is to make sure that our economy and our military have the resources they need to move jets where they need to go, but also move groceries where they need to go. I mean, when when we have diesel constraint in the Northeast right now, because we don't have enough pipelines into the Northeast. We don't have enough refinery capacity to generate that diesel. I mean, those are fundamental challenges that we just didn't see a couple of years ago. I mean, we, we had kind of a basic understanding of this is the fuel that we need to power our economy. And now it seems like it's a regular occurrence on a far too often basis. Yeah.
0: I was going to bring something up. You had recently mentioned it kind of going back to the the emissions in, in pollution and, and greenhouse gas stuff, obviously you know, there's a lot of policies in place to try, you know, all these targets, you know, 2050, net zero. Again, the intent is great, but someone who's in policy like yourself, I mean, to me, if there's parts of the world that can emit without any consequences, like you said, why should we try and put forth the effort if all of a sudden it's like a little kid peeing in the pool, right? It's like, well, okay, this section, no one can pee in the pool, but in this section, everyone's peeing in the pool. Ultimately, the, the pool is getting a bunch of pee in it. Will there ever come a day where globally there will be sort of like a global policy that says, hey, here are some consequences and everyone will sign off on it? I would say no. But like, is there a way, do you think, for like the entire planet and all these leaders? of these economies, both OECD, non-OECD, to come together and, and align themselves? Because I feel like unless the whole entire planet comes together and the leaders that can dictate and influence behaviors in the private sector, the public sectors, won't we just be playing this tug of war for the rest of eternity?
1: Europe is kind of implementing a border adjustment tax, very much focused on methane emissions i think that has been interrupted somewhat by the ukraine russia war and a lot of the conversation at both paris and copenhagen was about how to potentially harm those economies that rely heavier on uh, dirtier fuels i think ultimately what they came up with which has been slow to be implemented is that their countries would just pay those countries to get to lower emitting energy sources quicker. It's slow to happen. Without really a robust market, without private action taking place, you don't see the quite the reforms that, that we've had here in the United States. So for example, with low cost natural gas, thanks to horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing, we were able to quadruple the amount of natural gas that the United States produces over the last decade. I mean, a little bit before that, but I mean, essentially over the last 11 years. Yeah, And so with that, the power industry said, why are we buying this coal? Let's switch to lower cost natural gas and up that. And just that simple switch, which is not simple in any way, but I mean, going from coal to natural gas, lowered emissions in the electricity sector by 70%. It took us from our emissions in 2010 down to 1990s levels, sometimes even below that. You took 20 years off the board for growth. I mean, we continued to grow in terms of population, in terms of businesses that are are very hungry for power. But that simple switch was the largest greening initiative that has been anywhere in the world. I mean, it, it's a remarkable achievement brought by oil and gas. And again, not to be partisan, but you would think that leaders in D.C. would say, let's embrace that. I mean, it's jobs here in the U.S. How do we export that to other countries?
0: Right. And I would say, you know, to, to that point, though, you know, we've had record levels of LNG export, which is great. They're hoping for more. But the reality is you just can't build out infrastructure on a flip of a dime. I mean, these LNG liquefaction plants I just call them
1: trains. It's just <laughs> easier to say train than it yeah. is liquefaction. Yeah.
0: Right, exactly. Yeah. Again, this stuff takes time. It takes. It's very capital intensive, but they're building a bunch of LNG facilities to, to increase export capacity, which is great, right? Do you see, I mean, do you see the natural gas markets continue to evolve the way they are? And do you see from a policy perspective that favors that? Industry, or do you feel like it's going to come to a headwind here, you know, as things continuously evolve and just more, I guess, initiatives to green? I try to listen to both sides, right, of like anti oil and gas, pro oil and gas to really draw my own conclusions. But there's arguments too that on the natural gas side, like it's not as quote unquote clean as what people say. Again, I'm not a scientist, I don't have the data to support that, but there are arguments to say, well, it's not actually as clean as what you think. Now, again, up for debate, I'm sure. But do you see the US continuing to evolve in the natural gas markets to, you know, to be global leaders in that space?
1: Yes, absolutely. First of all, you you're absolutely right. LNG facilities will continue to grow. Thankfully, President Biden did green light two new trains to come online. I think one in Texas and one in Louisiana. That'll bring our daily capacity somewhere from 11 BCF a day up to about 13 BCF a day. We continue to build out pipelines into Mexico. It's been challenging with the current administration there, but we're going to continue to see that grow. I think I saw estimates today of about nine BCF a day with the opportunity to to get into Mexico. And again, they are our second largest trading partner. I mean, what a fantastic opportunity for North America if we can lower energy costs in Mexico, allow them to bring more manufacturing back from South America and Central America back into Mexico. That helps support that economy, that helps support folks there and reduces our emissions within North America. Where I think you see challenges is in the Northeast, in the Virginia area, West Virginia area. Where you have these interstate pipelines, which Texas is not burdened by because we have fields that can get directly to market along the Gulf Coast without crossing state lines, where you have tremendous pipeline constraints. I mean, when the Northeast, particularly New York, Boston area, is challenged with not enough heating oil, not enough natural gas, they rely on Trinidad and Tobago several years ago it was Russia to bring in shipments of LNG and when you start to compare globally, we are seeing improvements significant improvements here in the United States to lower emissions. Part of the reason is that we have a very active NGO community here. We have a tremendous number of environmental activists here in the in the United States. What is NGO? Uh, non-government organizations that push? I mean, that are launching their own satellites, that are out in the field monitoring this. We don't have that in other countries. We certainly don't have that in Russia. Some of the comparisons that you see globally is that a Texas barrel of oil is 62% lower emitting than a barrel from Russia. Again, just that apples to apples comparison, if I'm an environmentalist, if I want to lower emissions... I want to go to a barrel of oil from Texas before I look elsewhere around the world. Now, I know they want to continue to move on to other things, but that's a reality right now, is that we have 100 million barrels of oil demand every day. It's going to grow to 102. We don't have China back up and going. We don't have jet fuel back up and going on on the demand side. That's going to even be higher here in a few years. And we've introduced some pretty big constraints. Now Russia can't go west. They've got to look east. They've got to look south. And so that's the developing world, right? That's India. That's China. That's where we want to be competing. And so, you know, hopefully policymakers will kind of see that bigger picture that you were talking about is is how do we think globally about lowering emissions? And presumably then that prioritizes Permian Basin, Gulf of Mexico, Haynesville, Eagleford, Bakken, these areas where we've been able to drive down emissions significantly from innovation, from help from our environmental activists, putting pressure on that, but also from just the constant desire to be better in this industry. And that efficiency standard, that's what drives them. It's not a policymaker tweeting about something. It's about how can I deliver better solutions for my company and for my shareholders? And really, you saw A tremendous change several years ago when these large publicly traded companies said, we're going to judge our CEOs and C-suite on the level of emissions, and we're going to tie their compensation to the level of emissions. That has been a tremendous driver in getting their emissions down below 1% on average. I mean, that is an unbelievable just efficiency gain that we've seen here in the United States that we don't see elsewhere around the world. That's a great point. And a lot of
0: what's driving it too is the investment community. I mean, you saw over the course of the few years, a lot of these huge institutions either divesting or saying, hey, unless you have a solid roadmap on your sustainability efforts, like we're pulling out. And a lot of them did. For us in, on the oil and gas side, again, do we, could we be doing better? Yes ultimately we're in business to create value for shareholders and that means profits so let's not you know let's not pretend like money doesn't mean anything because it's the driver but the cost of capital is, well, it was historically pretty low over the last few years. Now it's going up obviously with interest rates, but you know, companies are being rewarded on their efforts. And if you can reduce your cost of capital to implement some changes for the right reasons, you should be doing it anyways, but there's incentive there too. But again, it's it's a lot of it is driven by the investment community. And so, you know, again, whether it's policy or investment, I think regardless, I'm in the weeds. I work for an old field service company. I see it day in and day out. I go to drilling rigs. I was pretty much raised on a drilling rig. We have come so far on gaining efficiencies and doing our job, you know, doing more with less. And really like there's so much, especially on the large publicly traded companies, which you know, I work with our company works with quite a few of them, and I work directly for one of them. A lot of the meetings and conversations are had is like, how do we reduce diesel consumption? How do we reduce water consumption? How do we get trucks off the road? How do we get less people driving to the rig and, you know, to and from their house? Let's create remote ops centers so people can do their job from the office instead of going out and burning up fuel and putting their putting their health at risk. And so the efforts are being made, but unless you're in the weeds, you, you just read the headlines and then you draw conclusions based off of what you read and then apply it to very complex problems, which... No one really knows the complexity of all this. At least I i don't know anyone who does.
1: <laughs> no, I, I haven't met anyone either. And I, I mean, I'm constantly learning new things in this space. My background really from the political side, kind of learning battle oil and gas through actions at the legislature and then over at the Railroad Commission. And, and really it's It's remarkable the pace of change and just trying to keep up with it on the outside and now at a trade association to just wrap my arms around it. It's difficult sometimes. And so that is some of the delivery to lawmakers is, look, this is constant innovation. And so the best thing for you to do is to provide some certainty, to provide some goals, and certainly this industry can hit it if it's reducing freshwater demand. It's incredible how fast that occurred with the fracking technology. I mean, you had to have pristine, clean water 10 years ago going down hole. That's not the case today. I mean, they're able to take brackish, they're able to take recycled water and put it down hole. I mean, thanks to the service industry for thinking quickly on how can we fix these challenges. You had to have Wisconsin white sand. It it was just perfect purity sand. It only came from one place in in the United States. Now you're able to scoop right directly in the Permian Basin. You're lowering uh, your transportation costs and you're still able to see the level of production continue to rise. It's a remarkable story of just how to overcome. And frankly, it's what's been happening for the last hundred plus years here in the United States in this industry. That's why I'm so excited about Texas Alliance of Energy Producers. So we represent smaller guys. We certainly have a lot of the big guys that support us. But our mission is to support family run operations and small oil and gas businesses in the state of Texas who have a long track record of working in communities across Texas, smaller communities, Graham and Abernathy and Wichita Falls and Abilene. And that's the strength that they brought over the last 120 years here in Texas. They love what they're doing. They love passing on the business to their family. And Texas is so unique in that that we have multi-generations of businesses that have been able to thrive here because both an environment and a government that supports what they're doing. And we don't want to lose that. So your forum and others are critical to making sure that people see how important it is to the state of Texas, how important it is to rural communities across Texas. There are a lot of jobs in Houston. There are a lot of jobs in Midland, but you talk about five to 10 jobs in some of these smaller communities. That's, that's critical. I mean, that keeps things moving. That keeps the school district being able to pay their teachers. Those types of opportunities we need to make sure still exist both here in Texas, but also in the United States that was going to be one of my questions is to kind
0: of outline what exactly the Texas Alliance of Energy Producers does. So I'm curious more on a personal level, Jason, how did you, or I guess, where did you grow up and and at what point did you dive into a career of, you know, doing policy and being in public affairs and, and really more on like the governmental side of things?
1: The politics bug pretty early on in high school, wanted to work around politics. Eventually, worked at the Texas legislature. So, why did you want and to work in politics? I don't know what initially drove it. I mean, exciting opportunities, seeing big changes occur, whether it was a Berlin Wall falling or just the tremendous excitement. A kid growing up in the 80s in Texas, in Houston, and we had. James Baker and George H.W. Bush, I mean, just the hometown heroes that were really so instrumental and kind of shaping global politics and that's where i thought i wanted to do international politics and went to school for political science and just kind of fell in love with with the texas political process did a couple of internships and didn't want to leave didn't want to go to, to washington dc and, and spend time there worked for the texas legislature worked for some great state leaders at the ag department and then at the railroad commission and really kind of got that bug for staying in politics. And then I worked for a gentleman out of San Angelo area, state representative, and he was tasked with being the energy resources chairman. And so that kind of became my new role is to learn more about oil and gas. And this was right after Denton, a city in North Texas had imposed a fracking ban and really a, a tremendous challenge for the development of North Texas and how that potentially was going to spread to other jurisdictions in Texas. And so we quickly worked with the new attorney general and other folks in, in the industry to kind of craft a balance of what's the appropriate role for the state, what's the appropriate role for cities to regulate oil and gas. And it's it, it's been a tremendous bill, House Bill 40, it's coming up on 10 years now of really stabilizing the industry, excuse me, 2015, so we're almost up on eight years, that was so critical to making sure that there was a stable regulatory environment, that cities knew what their role was, and that oil and gas and mineral owners had some certainty into how the state was going to be developed if there was overlap on the surface. And so from there, just a bunch of other policy issues whether it was how the state has dealt with seismicity or how we've really had a modernization at the railroad commission over the last 10 years adapting rules to unconventional fields adapting how operators work now they work remotely they work from the field they work from a tough book and so figuring out better ways to file forms quicker responses all that work has been it's been a lot of fun yeah it sounds like it
0: i mean so what would you say when you get up in the morning what's the one thing that, that really gets you up, gets you driven and motivated to get out there and do what you do?
1: It's the family businesses that the Alliance supports. They don't have a person in Austin. They don't have a person in Washington, D.C. They rely on our team at the Alliance to bring them the information that they need to, to continue to be at the forefront of changes happening here in Texas, but then also to be their voice in Austin and in Washington, D.C. for this is how it's going to affect smaller operators. And they want to compete. They want to have just as many opportunities as the big guys. And so that's what drives me is an opportunity to speak for all operators in Texas, but particularly small businesses. Okay. it's
0: like I kind of refer to them as like the underdogs. You know what I mean? Is, is they're at the wrath of all the craziness that goes on. They don't necessarily get on the spotlight, but they're subject to you know all the policy and, and rules and regulations, just like everyone else. I commend you and, and the rest of the, the team to just doing what you're doing, being a voice and, and helping, and and ultimately doing it out of the goodness of your guys' hearts. And again, I think it's just it's important for everyone to feel like they have a seat at the table to voice their concerns. You know whether it's regardless of what it is, but I just yeah, again, I I think it's great. And I had never heard of the Texas Alliance uh, of Energy Producers. But you guys, and before we started going, you mentioned there's some resources that you guys also have on your website, right? Could you share a few of those? Because I think it's interesting to know that you
1: do offer some good resources and information for just the general population. Yeah, Justin. So one, our social media is kind of where we keep up with most of our items. Texas Alliance of Energy Producers, Twitter, Facebook, that sort of thing. But our website, TexasAlliance.org. We've put up a number of operator surveys, whether it's on major constraints that they're seeing in Washington, major supply chain issues that they're experiencing. We've identified steel availability as kind of a big constraint right now that hopefully policy changes will help to spur some new steel here in the United States. We also have daily price information that we make available free for both mineral owners and producers. So that they can see different markets around the state, what people are paying on a daily basis and comparing that with kind of the NYMEX so that operators can see what's happening. And then for our members, we kind of tabulate all of that. We generate a, an economic analysis called the Texas Petro Index, which has tracked the health of the Texas oil and gas for the last nearly 20 years. And so really shows the ups and downs and the, and the ebbs and flows of the industry. And so we try to provide that information both to operator, but then also to the layman and the mineral owner so that they can see the health and the opportunity in this industry.
0: Yeah. No, I just actually popped it open. I was just looking at it. Yeah, there's a ton of tabs and, and just good information and resources. I like that too the the 2022 Pulse of the Old Patch Survey. Like tons of good information in there. I encourage anyone out there who's listening that's interested you can visit texasalliance.org. I'll put the link in the show notes, but cruise around. You know, it looks like you guys are pretty active on it looks like Twitter perhaps. And it's something that I always preach pretty heavily, especially on LinkedIn is just, you know, content 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 and It's to communicate your message. You have to be where all the attention is, and right now, arguably, it's it's online. It's on your phones. It's podcasting. I think I read the stat this morning. It's like fifty. It's a fifty-two minutes of commute back and forth for the average American. I mean, that's a lot of windshield time, and so. I'm big on podcasting and audio. YouTube, obviously, a lot of people will use YouTube and just pop it open and listen to the audio. But the more we can spread the message, just regardless of what information it is, it's so important. And so it looks like you guys do a good job of getting out there. And because yeah, you may have the best information in the world, but unless you're getting in front of eyeballs or into the into the ears of people, it does you no
1: good. Yeah, that's like production. I mean, without the pipelines, without the port, uh, it, it make no, makes no difference. You can drill all day, uh, you can't yeah. get it to market.
0: <laughs> That's a good analogy, man. I like that. Jason, this has been a great conversation. I certainly respect your time. But before we do log off, I, I do want to close out with with a question. I normally ask it towards the beginning, but we kind of kick things off in a different era, Well, just in a great direction, actually. But do you have any core beliefs that you've changed your mind over the last couple of years? And this could be related to energy policy, personal views? Does anything kind of come to mind?
1: I think it's probably something that we we, we touched on. Working for Republican elected officials, I had kind of a an owner, ownership, if you will, on oil and gas, it's a Republican issue. And really getting out of that and into a trade association, energy is in no way a partisan issue. It's a family table issue. People need that abundant, affordable reliable energy regardless of what party you may claim or affiliate with and so how do we deliver on that and certainly there are priorities that people have for different technologies or lower emissions but you have such a tremendous workforce both in oil and gas and in the electricity sector and then all of the service companies that help to support both those roles and it's kind of an untold story that that we really need to help magnify and make sure that people are aware of where their energy comes from, but then also overlay their goals that they have. And they'll see that there's constant innovation in this space. There's lower emissions in this space, and that's something that they should be proud of, even if they're not directly affiliated with an oil and gas company or, or, or in the electricity space. I don't know if that quite answered your question, but just evolving on this issue that, man, we have we are blessed in Texas with good rock, with the largest amount of pipe, so many seaports, the ability to get it to market, really good people. And then thankfully, those people support a government that puts together good policies, and we see where in other states, I mean, California has tremendous oil and gas resources, and yet they've constrained that to the point where they rely on uh, South American rainforest to be bulldozed and drilled down there. They rely on ships anchored off of Long Beach that are going to burn dirtier maritime diesel, but ultimately to import that energy that they could have gotten right there in Kern County. I mean, what yeah. a just a bad policy decision, regardless of whatever you're thinking about, you're disregarding your higher priorities for a cleaner environment, for jobs in your community, just because you don't like oil and gas. And we see that same thing in New York, where they've barred pipelines, they've barred hydraulic fracturing from occurring. And so let's be smarter. Let's think globally about our priorities, about our goals, but don't, Don't just turn away from somebody. We talked a little bit about energy transition. I don't think that's what's happening. I think we're talking about addition. We're talking about how do we add on more energy because we are going to double our energy consumption over the next 30 years. And where is that going to come from? And so that's the challenge before all of us, regardless of party, is how are we going to meet that?
0: I like that. And I've heard that term used more and more instead of energy transition, energy addition because ultimately we're not going to use less and less energy as the populations and and people gain more access to energy because there's a lot of places in in the world that don't. So yeah, it's, how can we add more energy and it's going to take everybody. It's a game of us and them, not us or them. So Jason, again, appreciate the conversation. Thanks for everything you guys do. Is there any closing last words, any initiatives, anything you'd like to plug before
1: we log off here? No, Justin, thank you very much. Uh, Please follow us on Twitter, Texas Alliance EP, I think is the Twitter handle, but look forward to working with you and and seeing your podcast grow. I'm really excited about your platform. Thanks, Justin. Thanks,
0: Jason. And uh, to all the listeners out there, really appreciate the support. If you could leave a review, subscribe, hit me up on LinkedIn. If there's any topics you'd like me to cover, anyone you'd like me to interview, certainly open to it. And I love engaging with the audience, any value I can add, I'm always willing to do so. And for everyone out there, always remember when the density up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. Thanks, everybody. Thanks again for listening. Tune in next week for another episode of Oil & Gas Onshore, a production of Oil & Gas Global Network. For more information, visit OGGN.com.